Introduction Mosby's Memoirs This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Mosby's Memoirs by Colonel John Singleton Mosby Introduction The chronicles of history record that in most wars some figure, through intrepidity, originality, and brilliancy of action, has raised himself above his fellows, and achieved a picturesqueness which is commonly associated only with characters of fiction. In the American Civil War, or the war between the states, three dashing cavalry leaders, Stuart, Forrest, and Mosby, so captured the public imagination that their exploits took on a glamour which we associate, as did the writers of the time, with the deeds of the Waverley characters and the heroes of chivalry. Of the three leaders, Colonel John S. Mosby, 1833-1916, was perhaps the most romantic figure. In the South his dashing exploits made him one of the great heroes of the lost cause. In the North he was painted as the blackest of redoubtable scoundrels, a fact only to be explained as due to the exasperation caused by a successful enemy, against whom all measures were worthless and ineffective. So great became the fame of Mosby's partisan exploits that soldiers of fortune came even from Europe to share his adventures. Colonel Mosby was a Virginian of the Virginians, educated at the State's University, and seemed destined to pass his life as an obscure Virginia attorney, when war brought him his opportunity for fame. The following pages contain the story of his life as private in the cavalry, as a scout, and as a leader of partisans. But Mosby was the type of man who is not content with the routine performance of duties, and this was illustrated early in his career as a soldier. He was ever on the watch to aid the cause in which he was engaged. Stuart's famous ride around McClellan, and Lee's attack on Pope, before he could be reinforced, were deeds for which Mosby fairly earned some share of credit. These enterprises, together with his prevention of Sheridan's use of the Manassas Gap Railroad, had a distinct bearing upon the successful maintenance of the Southern Confederacy for four long years but his great work was his distinctive warfare near Washington against the troops guarding the Potomac. Behind the northern forces aiming at Richmond, for two years of almost incredible activity, Mosby himself said, I rarely rested more than a day at a time. He maintained his warfare, neutralizing at times some fifty thousand troops, by compelling them to guard the rear of the enemy and his capital. The four counties of Virginia nearest Washington became known as Mosby's Confederacy. Here his blows were almost incessant, followed always by the dispersing of his band, or bands, among the farmhouses of the sympathetic inhabitants. Seldom or never was an attack made with more than two hundred and fifty men. Usually from thirty to sixty would be collected at a rendezvous, such as Rectortown, Aldi, or Upperville and after discharging, as it were, a lightning flash, be swallowed up in impenetrable darkness, leaving behind only a threat of some future raid, to fall no one could foresee where. The execution of this bold plan was successful, long successful, its damage to the enemy enormous, and it exhibited a military genius of the highest order. By reason of his originality and intellectual boldness, 
as well as his intrepidity and success of execution. Mosby is clearly entitled to occupy a preeminence among the partisan leaders of history. And this is to be said for him, that he created and kept up to the end of the Great War Mosby's Confederacy, while preserving the full confidence and regard of the knightly Lee. Confederate General Marcus Wright, who assisted in editing the records of the war, wrote to Colonel Mosby as follows. Dear Colonel Mosby, it may, and I know will be interesting to you, that I have carefully read all of General R. E. Lee's dispatches, correspondence, etc., during the war of 1861 to 1865, and while he was not in the habit of paying compliments, yet these papers of his will show that you received from him more compliments and commendations than any other officer in the Confederate Army. But an even more effective testimonial of Mosby's success comes from the records of his enemy. For a time the Northern belief was that Mosby was a myth, the wandering Jew of the struggle. Later he was termed the modern Rob Roy. Such epithets as land pirate, horse thief, murderer, and guerrilla bear witness of the feeling of exasperation against the man. Guerrilla, however, was the favorite epithet and Mosby did not resent its use, for he believed that his success had made the term an honorable one. The effectiveness of Mosby's work is illustrated by the following comment of the Comte de Paris in his History of the Civil War in America. In Washington itself, General Heinzelman was in command who, besides the depots, had under his control several thousand infantry ready to take the field and Stahl's division of cavalry numbering six thousand horses, whose only task was to pursue Mosby and the few hundred partisans led by this daring chief. General Joseph E. Hooker, in his testimony on the conduct of the war, said, I may here state that while at Fairfax Courthouse my cavalry was reinforced by that of Major General Stahl. The latter numbered sixty-one hundred sabres. The force opposed to them was Mosby's guerrillas, numbering about two hundred, and if the reports of the newspapers were to be believed, this whole party was killed two or three times during the winter. From the time I took command of the Army of the Potomac, there was no evidence that any force of the enemy, other than the above named, was within one hundred miles of Washington City. And yet the planks on the chain bridge were taken up at night the greater part of the winter and spring. It was this cavalry force, it will be remembered, I had occasion to ask for, that my cavalry might be strengthened when it was numerically too weak to cope with the superior numbers of the enemy. How redoubtable Mosby was considered by the Northern authorities may be seen from the following. War Department, Washington, April 16, 1865 To Major General Hancock, Winchester, Virginia in holding an interview with Mosby, it may be needless to caution an old soldier like you to guard against surprise or danger to yourself, but the recent murders show such astounding wickedness that too much precaution cannot be taken. If Mosby is sincere, he might do much toward detecting and apprehending the murderers of the President. Signed, Edwin M. Stanton, Secretary of War. Secretary Stanton had previously telegraphed to Hancock, there is evidence that Mosby knew of Booth's plan, concerning the assassination of Lincoln, and was here in the city with him. 
No one knew better than Hancock that Mosby, at the time of the assassination, was in Virginia. The notion that he had anything to do with this crime was a part of the reputation he had acquired in the North, and which he was doubtless quite willing to acquire, in order to give worse dreams to those of the enemy who were in the neighborhood of his operations. This reputation was fostered by soldiers who, during the war and long afterwards, entertained their firesides with tales of hair-breadth escapes from the dreadful guerrillas. But some of Mosby's best friends in his later life were men who had been his prisoners. So far did the hostility and feeling against Mosby carry that as late as May 4, 1865, almost a month after Lee's surrender, General Grant telegraphed to General Halleck, I would advise offering a reward of $5,000 for Mosby. This was done, but nobody captured him. The turning point in his career after the war was his endorsement of, and voting for, Grant in 1872. The Civil War was then but seven years past, and the Southern people were not prepared to follow his lead. They turned against him bitterly, against one of their chief heroes, whom they had delighted to honor, who had struggled so manfully and for so long against the storm raging against them. Young and of little experience in politics, he may have thought it inconceivable that they would treat his voting for the magnanimous soldier as the unforgivable sin. His motive was rather gratitude than political, rather a response to Grant's behavior toward the Southern Army, General Lee, and himself, than any design to change the attitude of the South toward the Federal Government. Certainly the Colonel, in spite of abuse and recrimination heaped upon him, never repented of this act. During his last illness Colonel Mosby did say, no doubt to hear himself contradicted, I pitched my politics in too high a key when I voted for Grant. I ought to have accepted office under him. My family would now be comfortably supplied with money. But this was far from being his serious opinion, as his own statements show. Intellectually the Colonel showed as great a constitutional impatience of restraint, and as great individuality as he exhibited in his operations during the war. Perhaps his lifelong fondness for Byron's poetry resulted from a feeling that there was a resemblance between the experiences of Byron, as represented in his poems, and his own, the war of the many with one. But the resemblance was a superficial one. Mosby's impatience of restraint was a so strongly marked characteristic that he always seemed unwilling to follow a plan of his own, after having disclosed it to another. Probably the reason the Yankees, trying to trap him, could never find out where he was going to be next, was because he never knew himself. The following from an interview with him, which appeared in the Philadelphia Post in 1867 or 1868, illustrates his tendency to think independently. Question. Whom do you think the ablest general on the Federal side? Answer. McClellan, by all odds. I think he is the only man on the Federal side who could have organized the army as it was. Grant had, of course, more successes in the field in the latter part of the war, but Grant only came in to reap the benefits of McClellan's previous efforts. At the same time, I do not wish to disparage General Grant, for he has many abilities. But if Grant had commanded during the first years of the war, we would have gained our independence. Grant's policy of attacking would have been a blessing to us, 
for we lost more by inaction than we would have lost in battle. After the first Manassas the army took a sort of dry rot, and we lost more men by camp diseases than we would have by fighting. Question. What is your individual opinion of Jeff Davis? Answer. I think history will record him as one of the greatest men of the time. Every lost cause, you know, must have a scapegoat, and Mr. Davis has been chosen as such. He must take all the blame, without any other credit. I do not know any man in the Confederate States that could have conducted the war with the same success that he did. Question. Are there any bitter feelings cherished? Answer. No, not now, except those engendered since the war by the manner in which we have been treated. The whole administration of affairs in Virginia is in the hands of a lot of bounty-jumpers and jailbirds, and their only qualification is that they can take the ironclad oath. But, he added, they generally take anything else they can lay their hands on. General Grant and Colonel Mosby came to be far more than political friends. In fact, it was through General Grant that Mosby secured his position with the Southern Pacific Railroad, which he held from 1885 to 1901. The two men were well suited to each other. Grant was a silent man, a good listener. Mosby, abrupt and even rude toward those who wished to speak to him irrelevantly, dearly loved to talk to an intelligent person. The silent and slow commander of all the armies, guided by luminous common sense, and the nervous, impetuous raider, a raider by temperament, a raider in every way, in practice of law, taking part in politics, writing memoirs, had much in common that was fundamental. They were but children in taking care of their business affairs. They were shy, and full of feeling, sentiment, and romance. The Colonel was an assistant attorney in the Department of Justice at Washington from 1904 to 1910 and continued to reside in the capital until his death, May 30, 1916. He was not often inclined to talk about his own exploits in the Civil War, though going at some length into explanations of the movements of the great armies and engaging in various controversies about them, as well as about other matters of public interest, past and present. Colonel Mosby realized that the account of the military operations at the Battle of Manassas included in the present volume is markedly at variance with the usual version. His efforts to unravel the story of Stuart's cavalry in the Gettysburg campaign extended over many years, and resulted in a book and numerous articles. The account which he prepared for these memoirs he considered the best answer to Stuart's critics, and spoke of it as the final word. The Colonel was little interested in anything which did not concern man in his social relations except perhaps, logic and polemics. What could not be affirmed positively with the geometric QED, or in Latin quo erdot demonstratum, appealed to him only as it concerned war, politics, sentiment, or the like. New inventions left him cold, if not a little resentful, at their disturbing or rendering out of date the historical setting of the Civil War. But in political and social matters he was an advanced thinker, although this was rather a liberal attitude of mind, in which he took pride, than any interest in the views themselves. His horizon in general was limited by American history and politics. 
he was full of the anecdotal history of virginia and conspicuous virginians of past generations as well as information about family relationships information such as printed in books in new england but in virginia has been commonly left to oral tradition but the events described in these memoirs were his greatest interest and the days when he was a commander of partisans were the golden days of his over fourscore years as he said at the reunion of his battalion in 1895 life cannot afford a more bitter cup than the one i drained at salem nor any higher reward of ambition than that i received as commander of the forty-third virginia battalion of cavalry signed charles w russell end of introduction